Hi, welcome to the fourth interview of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, today, Adam and I are really excited to welcome Shweta Krishnan. She is a six-year PhD candidate in anthropology at George Washington University. And I'm going to start by asking you, Shweta, uh, where are you uh, broadcasting from right now? Okay, I'm in my room in Washington, D.C. Any scenic views that you have of D.C.? Well, so I can, I have a nice little rooftop that I can get onto from the window in my room. And from the rooftop, oh, I can cute. see the back alley. So I think that's pretty much, pretty, that's very scenic <laughs> for our, the times that we live in, right? <laughs> well, it depends what's happening in the back alley. Oh yeah, true. I actually miss being in the in New York City regularly and seeing the rats uh, become amorous with each other in the train tracks. This interview is off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're already off to rats mating with each other. So. I don't see the problem. <laughs> well, well, I do study human non-human relations vis-a-vis -vis religion, so I feel like this is great. This is a great segway start. time. Why don't you tell us more about that? Yeah. Okay, so um, as Andrew mentioned, I'm, uh, in my sixth year, I'm currently writing up my dissertation. Um, so theoretically, I'm interested in anthropology of religion, anthropology of environment. And when I say religion, I mean religion and secularism um, and anthropology of environment, um, sort of coming in from the STS angle. So in a very weird way, I was that person who, when I was, uh, training for my comms went around saying, oh yeah, I study STS and religion. People what does like, STS stand for? Oh, it's science technology studies. Okay. So people were like, so you study science and religion? <laughs> you like contradictions? And somehow <laughs> it's really interesting because I feel like it brings together two interests that I've always had. Um, so that's been really nice. And my field work, it's based in Northeast of India. And I, uh, work with a tribe that's called the Missing, but M-I-S-I-N-G, even though it sounds like Missing, M-I-S-S-I-N-G, which they often get asked, why are you called the Missing tribe? Are you guys, were you guys missing? Are you guys missing? And they're like, that's oh the God. most frustrating question in the world. Um, but yeah, M-I-S-I-N-G, Missing. Wait, so why are they called the Missing? So yeah, it comes from this, um, so Ami in uh, the language is, is it's sort of the generic term for man, hmm. uh, person, right? And um, a thing means cold. And so when you put the words together, it's sort of like missing is the person. Um, I mean, it literally kind of translates to cold person, but it's, hmm. it's, the, it's the person from the cold place. So they have this huge migratory history. So currently they live in Assam Valley, in the Brahmaputra Valley. Um, so Brahmaputra is the river that runs Which in the valley. Which is not known for being particularly cold, is it? No, so the valley isn't, but they migrated down to the valley um, many centuries ago. They think maybe 12th, 13th century um, from the Himalayas to the north. So they came uh, down from colder climes into the valley. So they, they believe that their name sort of represents the fact that they are the people from the colder climes. But there's a really interesting history around the name too, because um, the most educated person in these tribes, I mean, not necessarily the most educated, but the most knowledgeable, the sort of the wise man in the tribe is called the Miri. Um, 
and they're usually responsible for like tracking the seasons, uh, performing rituals, and you know, they're like shamanic figures in the tribes. The British, um, they call the whole tribe Miri, and they think that happened because, and not just the British, even before that, some of the Assamese populations call the whole tribe the Miris, and they think it's because they probably communicated with the Miri in the tribe, and then thought the whole tribe is Miri, and so they believe they have been falsely named for many, many centuries now. So in the last few years, um, they've been trying to correct a lot of these representational issues as well as sort of fight for autonomy, um, rethink their own modes of being, their modes of being represented, who they want to become and all of this. So my, my dissertation actually does deal with an aspect of this, right? I'm looking at the religious revival that is a part of this movement, this movement for autonomy. Um, but apart from that, they are also sort of in the process of having their name changed in the constitution from Miri to Missing. Um, they are reviving their language, the Missing language, um, which they believe sort of got mixed with Assamese, not believe it is quite mixed with Assamese. Like it's you know um, in in sort of everyday speech, mm. Assamese and Missing are sort of mixed in, um, and so they are now trying to um, come up with a self-sufficient dictionary, um, uh, sort of with a with a little bit of a preface on the grammar of the language, and and hopefully you know from there they can produce much more um, book on sort of the linguistic aspects of their mm. culture. Um, but yeah, so along with all of this, they're in the process also of reviving their religion. So the religion is a religion. Sorry, Adam? I just said that's quite incredible. Um, please keep going. Oh no, I was just gonna say the religion, it's shared with seven other, uh, or six other sister tribes. One of those tribes they believe still sort of exists on the other side of the Indo-Chinese border in southern China, which is where they believe they originally migrated from, right? So they migrated from southern China into Tibet, into what is the state of Arunachal Pradesh today, and then into the valley. So there are, they broke off from one mother tribe into seven sister tribes along the migration. And the missing is, is they, they think they are the last of those many sort of disambulations of the sort of mother tribe. And, um, and these are histories of, uh, you know, these are histories and these are sort of like geographies that are coming up with this revival, right? Ways of seeing themselves, ways of representing themselves, ways of sort of being able to talk about their past in their own terms, because the history of this region and everything is much more told through the lens of the geopolitics of India and uh, China and Tibet and um, so this is something new for them too. So when I say they think or they believe, it's because it's a process that is still very much being speculated, researched into, debated. And um, so it's part of this revival, part of this sort of, um, I guess it's a, it, it is an autonomy, movement for autonomy in a way but it's also very much a self-making movement, right? Like who are we is the question that they're really trying to answer and sort of answer it in their own terms. So who are we in terms of our own history, our own migrational history, in terms of the landscapes which we traversed, our ancestors lived in, how can we tell the story of us in this place by centralizing our own experiences mm. as opposed to other experiences. So part of all of this is sort of reviving this religion, um, which, 
to them is is a set of practices and beliefs which allows them to um, relate better to each other, to certain sacred spaces, to ancestral figures, to ancestral deities. And so it's a, it's a cosmology, like most religions are, but it's a cosmology that both got lost in sort of um, like in and through the migration, it evolved, it it merged into other things and, and you know, it got recorded many times by many different people, both pre-British and British as like just a facet of Hinduism mm. um, and sort of got subsumed under that. Um, it did mingle very heavily in the area that I work with, with local forms of Hinduism. So it's easily mistakable, right? Like for Hinduism. So now they're in the process of sort of separating it from there, coming up with their own, um, you know, making it a distinct um, religious discourse in its own right so that its cosmology can be again understood in its own terms for what it is um, so it's a, like what I study is this process right what, what does it mean to want to have a religion of your own religion at this point and what does that really do for you that's that, those are the questions that I am interested in so I'm not writing so much about their cosmologies and their worldviews and and not sort of the structure of their religion as structuralist anthropologists might do um, I'm much more interested in sort of these long-term historical processes which make a people feel like religion mm. of the many discourses there are can give them a sense of who they are and how they must relate to place and other people and um, non-human figures as well, right? Like the animals that they live with, their ancestral figures and deities. And so I'm, I'm looking at those those things as processes and how they shape you and they shape your sense of who you are they shape your sense of relationality yeah and i was gonna just ask about this historical question that you're bringing up is there a certain bounded um time of an origin i mean origin story can always be very loaded but is there a type of period that they really trace this revival to yeah, the revival, yes. Um, so it started in the 1980s. Um, so again, like it's a, it's a religion that has, that has many, sorry, I'm looking for the right word. So it's like, it's practiced by seven different tribes, right? So it has many iterations. And um, so many of these iterations have had their own sort of, revivals and sort of like there have been many attempts to sort of re to restructure it to to give it a to give it a distinct form so that it can be articulated as a specific separate religion mm -hmm. um Stuart blackburn is an anthropologist he looks at um sort of one of these tribes called the apatani and, and the way they tell their folk stories and the way they they you know he's he's a folklorist and Anthropologist, he's also very interested in the folk songs and folk tales and how the the sort of tribal worldview comes in through all of this. And um, there's so there are these many tribes. So the movement that I am looking at was sort of born in the town of Pasigat in Arunachal Pradesh, and it's a very interesting place because it's sort of at the juncture of the valley and the hills, right? So you can drive up the Brahmaputra River. Um, and sort of follow it, follow one of its uh, tributaries down to Pasigat. 
And from Pasigat, you can climb into the hills and you can see the, mount, the, the river sort of come down from the hills at, at a particular junction in Pasigat. And it's really just a gorgeous town. Um, so it's mostly um, inhabited by people of the Adi tribe. So the Adi and the Missing believe that they're very closely related tribes and they used to live in and around that area. And there were already historical differences between, you know, the small differences between the ways in which they did stuff, but like the people who identify as Missing today, they migrated and sort of broke off from the Adi and moved further down the river and came down into the Assam Valley. So what you see, to, like what I'm studying right now, this revival, it's, it's mostly started by the by uh, this one particular man called Palum Rukpo and his friends in sort of a living room in a house as a conversation where they were talking about, you know, because um, Arunachal Pradesh, that area was heavily, like during the period of colonization, quite heavily, um, you know, taken over by um, Christian missions. And so there was a lot of conversion to Christianity, following which, um, I think there were a lot of um, Hindu missions that went there to sort of reconvert people and, you know, and, and so there's a, there's a heavy presence of things like the Ramakrishna missions uh, that, that are based in Calcutta, but they're sort of present across Arunachal Pradesh in these areas, right? So I think the general idea, however, of revivalism, uh, one can actually decolonize and go back to what was one's ancestral religion um, or what is understood to be one's actual religion. Um, was an inspiration for Talum Rukpo and several of his friends. And so they came together to sort of discuss, okay, we're not really Christian. We converted because of the pressure. And even if a lot of them, including Talum Rukpo at this point, was Christian and was not entirely dissatisfied by it, but they believe that because they have sort of like taken up these Christian practices, their own practices do suffer. And, and especially the stigma that is you know, um, sort of heavily thrust onto certain indigenous practices and stuff like that by Christianity, um, then frame their own ancestral religion in this sort of negative lens. And once that, that became evident to them, um, and that became evident to them because of these Hindu revivalisms that are going on around them, but they didn't also want to then, you know, sort of attach themselves to these missions and become Hindu. So it started as a conversation among a bunch of people who had an education, who had traveled a lot in the area, who were in conversation with these other revival movements to talk about, okay, what can we do? Um, so I think it was a very deliberate move on their part to try and frame whatever they could revive from existing ancestral songs. And so it's, a, it's an oral tradition that is practiced in several villages. So they had to travel down to these villages. They became archivists in a way for a few years, right? So they traveled down to these villages, collected these oral, um, songs and stories and chants and everything that 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 they still could collect mm -hmm. um so in a way it's it's a large it's a collective memory project in a way right and so they collected all of this and so went through all of that and tried to come up with um you know ethical norms ethical practices that would give all of this the shape of a distinct modern religion um so in a way my i think for me the most interesting thing was when i meet these uh, revivalist. So Talum Rukpo, unfortunately, he passed away in 1994 in a car crash. He was quite young still. Mm. Um, but his friends continued the movement. And then, of course, a lot of other people joined. And so this was mostly Adi men, as I said, but a lot of missing men joined in as well, and women as well from both Adi and missing tribes. So now it sort of exists from Pasi Ghat to, you know, you, 
and again you can follow the river down to to the different places where this has gone because that was the original track that the migrational route so you find still most missing and adi villages along the river along those uh, along that route so they moved down to all these parts they were first collecting stories but then once they started to have this um, religious discourse they went back here to say okay here this is how we are reviving our religion so you can see how families in all these uh, villages along that particular track now have started calling themselves um, you know they they don't call themselves hindu anymore they don't call themselves christian anymore they call themselves doni polo which is the name of the religion um, and it's because it's organized around the central sort of ancestral force called doni polo which they believe is the sort of life giving force and it's also omnipotent and omnipresent and it's all around you right it's like the source of all energy all life um as physical manifestations they believe it exists with us as the sun and the moon um doni is the sun and polo is the moon but um in the colonial times when they were written about they were sort of reduced into the sun moon religion so they say that's not who they are because that just you know takes away any chance that they can have at having a philosophy or having you know much more of a like their cosmology is then reduced into you know simple natural elements and i think um so they've been trying to read a lot about what are some of these colonial processes that went into the labeling of some religions as animist religions some religions as world religions and some religions as you know um local religions and whatever and what not and so they've been trying to read all of this to be a little bit more aware of both their own history as well as the history of the making of religions in those areas so they can come up now as they're sort of reformulating and reviving their religion they can come up with a framework that is not just legible amongst them um, not just legible to the tribes and the and the future practitioners of this religion but also legible to other people so that they can be recognized as a um, as a as as followers of a distinct religion right so um yeah sorry that was a long no no i feel like <laughs> no, that was fantastic and it's so necessary for you to just lay out this whole yeah intersections between how this revivalism started and i'm just curious is there a set of core literary texts that they follow or like that you would point towards that um you know maybe it's not a literary uh um you know uh religion you're looking for a bible well no no not a bible <laughs> definitely not no more in the no, sense of just other philosophical texts that they follow so i can um so like i said earlier it was much more of a it it is it is an oral tradition right because the mm. adi and messing language don't really have a script they never needed one um so they didn't have anything in writing mm. but they do believe that that is one of the reasons why it got erased it didn't get documented properly yeah. Okay. even when religions of those areas were getting documented they do believe that hinduism for example had an upper hand or buddhism had an upper hand because there are texts there are scriptures there are things which seem like they are, they are written in stone whereas here it's so dependent on memory and um they they do think that you know tribes such as the missing or the adi um during the colonial period when people convert into christianity or 
all sort of give up religion and, and just become very modern secular you know or become hindu because you know they're documented as hindu so why not just become more hindu um you sort of there's a loss of continuity in the transference of this oral knowledge right because you you need to be somebody who 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 practices this on a daily basis to remember these songs to and even if you remember them to pass them on especially with like conversions to christianity one of the problems is it's, it's it becomes a question of blasphemy right it becomes a question of um like if if you're a christian you go to church but then you come home and you have these shamanic practices you're not a proper christian um with hinduism i think it's it's a different kind of incorporation which is also what i am very interested in because in the assam valley it's much more of its sort of entanglement with hinduism so hindu deities and hindu gods you know like deities of another polytheistic religion which also has you know like similar relatable but not the same ideas about um a force which produces the world, things like that right they they sort of merge into it and at some point um generations down the line you're not sure which story you're passing down you're passing down a little bit of the story and a little bit of that story and sort of like it, it, it like you know hinduism and dhoni polo got braided into each other a little bit and new practices came up as well as new deities were entering into this sort of um the dhoni polo um uh pantheon as some hindu deities started entering the pantheon new practices came up around them as well so it's not just like it's it's not i like i avoid the term syncretic when i write about it because it's not like there's a preformed dhoni polo and there's a preformed hinduism and they merged mm. but all of these are always changing and so at you know at different points in time it depends on which facets encountered which facets and so and and different kinds of like comings together you know they happen and and so i think it's a very pluralistic kind of practice mm. um but either way then what is being passed down orally is very different from what was probably an ancestral religion right so again like today they have to revive it what's available to them is what is remembered so it's not necessarily 100% exactly what was perhaps being said or done in the 13th century there are a few villages and there are a few places where these other religions penetrated a lot less so they encountered these other religions these major religions like christianity and hinduism a lot less and so they probably just encountered different versions of dhoni polo different tribal religions so um, there they 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 seem to have more memory in a way for some of these um, folk stories and and uh, oral um, you know like folk songs and stuff like that um especially the chants and the um the ones that really honor the ancestral figures honor these uh, procreative figures right um but some of these other ones they they've changed because they either stopped saying them because of christianity like i said or they they started adding to these lists of deities um krishna or shiva or like you know recognizable hindu so it changes so um today i think that's the sort of it's an oral repository that they that they really have to rely on but as part of their revival however they are interested in producing a book because now that this religious revival happens alongside a linguistic revival and they are sort of coming up with a dictionary which means they're coming up with the like you know the the missionaries were the first people to sort of write um missing and adi down so they use the english alphabet huh. um so today adi and missing use the english alphabet um so it's a roman script 
but they do have a script, right? Um, it's a Roman script with accents um, to sort of accentuate the, the missing Adi pronunciation of things. It's not exact, it's not English, it's Roman. Um, so they're using that to write religious texts, right? Which is a collection of hymns, um, a collection of chants, a collection of songs, which are also stories. Um, so as part of my dissertation, I did um, a lot of work with one of those books. It's called the Angun Dadang, uh, which means the path of light. So the enlightenment. Um, and in a way, that is what this is, right? This is a tribal enlightenment. This is, this is the tribe's way of um, enlightening themselves about their own histories, mm -hmm. as well as sort of becoming enlightened about a worldview which has been forgotten, erased, colonized, and all of those things as well. So um, that book, The Angun Badang, um, it's a it's very small book, around 300 pages. Um, it has got this lovely little green cover. Mm -hmm. And on the front of the cover, there's, a, there's what is their symbol right now? Um, a sun and a moon. Um, you know, and it says Angun Badang, sort of the, the path of light. Um, Angun means light and Badang is path. So it says the Angun Badang. And it is, it is a collection, as it says in, in the Singanadi. It's a collection of hymns and songs. So um, there are songs there for like particular, you know, if someone dies, here are the songs that you sing. If someone's sick, here are the songs that you sing. And then they have regular sort of everyday songs, like, you know, on a, and like any sort of day, like no event. You, you can wake up and you have a morning hymn, you have an evening hymn, you have a hymn for good dreams, you have a hymn for good sleep. So in a certain sense, you can see how they are reinserting and incorporating um, certain deities and certain non-human figures back into sort of their everyday spaces as well as, you know, events that mark um, certain moments in life, like the birth of a child, the death of someone, a marriage, or, you know, as well as seasonal events. So they have a certain, not, it's um, not like certain sections are used in certain seasons or something, but they have like a harvest festival, right? Where they, where they say, okay, so first we start with the everyday, um, the song for any morning. And then we, this particular festival um, is dedicated to this particular deity. So we skip to that section of the book where the songs to that deity is written. And so we sing this. So they create a repertoire from this book to mm -hmm. say, okay, we sing this song and then this song and this song. And so it, it creates this sort of um, ritual, right? Like one follows the other, follows the other. And so you create a repertoire that can be used in a particular seasonal festival or a particular kind of festival. So um, yeah, but all those songs are in the book. So in a way, it has the legibility and the significance of what a Bible will have. Mm. Well, um, and I'm just curious, when did you first encounter Doni Polo? Right, so I... <laughs> So when I first went to Assam, I had a very different research question in mind. Um, I was very curious about sort of the spread of Hindutva in Assam. <laughs> and that's kind of what I wanted to study. But then I, I went to the... Uh, I was very curious about the rise of Hindutva um, because BJP won the elections in 2016 in Assam. And somehow I didn't see Assam as a place where BJP would win an election and not in that way. Like it was, a, it was quite a victory. 
Um, and I knew even from the amount of reading that I was doing that it was because local parties supported them over the Congress and it was because Congress was in power in that area for over 15 years and they hadn't done much. And so it seemed like, you know, the local Assamese political parties and groups supported the BJP. But with BJP comes saffronization. So I was very curious about, you know, what is what does this mean for BJP to win in Assam? And the chief ministerial candidate, he had won from this place called Majuli, this island um, that is in the um, upper Brahmaputra region. So I wanted to go to Majuli to sort of look at how is Majuli a good, you know, how, how does Majuli become... Um, the the place from which BJP sort of seems to be launching a, a campaign within Assam, right? And I did know before I went that Marjali was also a place where historically there had been a lot of um, Navvaishnavite monasteries. And so this is a 15th century devotional movement centering around the figure of Krishna. Um, but it's also very sort of it's a devotional movement, so it is not necessarily, it doesn't map onto mainstream Hinduism. It also started as an anti-caste movement, so there's already, you know, awkwardness with mainstream Hinduism, definitely a lot of awkwardness with Hinduism. So I was curious about these various Hinduisms, actually. But then when I went to the island, um, there was this morning when it was raining quite a lot, and so towards the evening I was just very... I just didn't want to be in one place. I was feeling fidgety. So I went out for a walk when it stopped raining. So I, I was staying in this, in this bed and breakfast. I took the closest turn I could and walked into this missing village. I went that time. I had a, I had a guide who also acted as my translator because I didn't really know Assamese at that point. And um, so, he, um, so he was from the Apotani tribe. Um, so he had already been trying to tell me a lot about tribal life in Northeast India. So anyway, we walk into this village and I knew that it was a missing village. And um, so as we were passing, one of the first houses that I saw was this beautiful uh, bamboo stilt house. And so the missing, they do live in bamboo stilt houses traditionally. Of course, now a lot of them don't. They live in very modern houses, right? But um, there was this one very beautiful bamboo um, stilt house um, stilt houses because it's a floodplain, so there's enough space for the um, water to pass through during the monsoon months. Um, but anyway, and there's this flag flying over the house, this white flag with a large red sun. And I stopped because for a minute I was like, wait, is that the Japanese flag? And it's not because the sun is not just a circle, there's rays, right? So it's like, it's not. So what is that? So I, I asked my guide, what is that? And he said, well, that's the animus symbol. That is Doni Polo. So I said, okay. And then we were, I was and I didn't pull out my camera. I try never to do that unless I have permission, right? Explicit. But a lot of travelers apparently do that. They stop and take pictures of, you know, it's such a beautiful bamboo house and has this flag. So Anyway, the owner of the house came down and he asked me, do you want to take a photograph? And I said, um, no, I was just very curious about the flag. So then he asked me, what do, you, uh, what do you do? And so I said, I'm an anthropologist. And then he said, oh, you're an anthropologist. Why don't you come in for, for tea? And then, you know, I can tell you about the flag. So it turns out that he is one of the participants in this large revival. 
movement, right? So it's actually a very lucky encounter in a way. Like, it was totally unplanned um, on both our parts. He wasn't looking for me. I wasn't looking for him. Anyway, tea lasted two hours. <laughs> we talked a lot about, I mean, he kind of gave me, um, in the same way that I'm giving you all right now, a very quick version of what had been happening um, until that point. And then he said, do you want to see one of our festivals? Because in two days we have the Dobur Puja, which is one of their harvest festivals. And he said, uh, you can come. So I said, okay, I am here in two days time and I will come. And then he asked, well, you don't mind pork, do you? So I was like, no, I actually like pork. So he was like, okay, great. Then it'll be great. Come. And then he said, we collect, um, I think they were collecting 30 rupees from everyone who was a participant just to like contribute to the, to the stuff that they need for the feast. So he said, uh, that's what we're collecting from the village. So, and that's exactly what I, I gave as well. Um, and he was like, okay, great, you can come. And so it was wonderful. I went and I realized that um, this movement, and it's something that I'm writing about in my dissertation as well. It's a sort of, it's, it's, it's become, it's coming into being, right? So like people are becoming Doni Polo. It's, it's a, it's in a very Delusian sense. It's a very, it's a community yet to come. It's, it's, it's a people yet to come. Like it's, it's, it's a process of becoming. So not a lot of people knew where this temple, like he, he said, there's a Doni Polo temple and that's why we're doing it. And it's called a Gangen. And I was like, I was asking people and they were like, we don't know. Um, some people knew, some people didn't. So some people, so it took me a while to find the place. I found the place. And um, yeah, there was just this beautiful, at that point I understood really nothing much about what it is that I'm really watching or seeing. Um, but there was a prayer and then there was a feast. Um, but then at the end of the feast, he said, so now you have a very good idea of how, is it, how we uncivilized people live. Wow. Huh. Oh. And then I think for me, there was just no turning back because that was, and it was a joke, right? He said it as a joke, um, but it was also just somewhat of a joke. There was a barb in it. Hmm. And so I really wanted to know what it is that he was talking about. And um, so my dissertation traces a lot of discomforts that exist around um, this tribe that you know they 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 uh, raise pigs, they eat pork, hmm. um, and that's not necessarily a very Hindu thing to do, right? It's not at all a Hindu thing to do in in the way that Hinduism is being framed now. Hmm. Um, definitely not a very Hindu thing to do, considering just how much anti-beef the politics is in the Northeast. It's anti all sorts of meat. Um, so I think that year, actually, unfortunately, that's all the funding I had. So two days after this festival, I had to leave. So I didn't really find out much. So I went back the next summer again. And then I like had much more interesting things to ask. I, I followed people around a little bit more, really tried to, um, watch them do things. And, and, but I think only when I started really my very long term, 18 months of stay in Marjorie, that's when I really just understood the sort of everyday frictions that happens right in and around the notion of raising pigs and eating pork and, mm -hmm. and therefore how people are talked 
about what they are allowed to be included in and what they're not allowed to be included in. So in Marjali, with this presence of these Krishna-based monasteries or Krishna-centric monasteries, um, a lot of the missing have been drawn over time to these practices. They love those stories. Krishna is a name that comes up in the missing villages too, alongside their ancestor, like alongside Doni Polo, you have Krishna. And um, so in their um, you know, practices too, they, they bring up the name of Krishna, right? But there is also in their practices then a, a feast later with pork. And um, so the more Hinduism refines and reforms itself into this non-violent vegetarian religion, particularly the Hindutva version of all of that, mm. right? The more these festivals and um, where Krishna and Pohok come together feel like outliers. Interesting. So there's much more of a discomfort on a sort of daily, everyday basis around what it is that they do. And I met a lot of people who said, well, yeah, the tribes, they don't really practice their own religion properly. They don't practice our religion properly. They don't have a proper religion. Mm. So then I could really understand why, you know, uh, a movement that started in Pasi Ghat, somewhere to the north of where they live, caught their eye. Why was it so important? Because, you know, while they had to sort of go through the sort of everyday racism and, you know, everyday um, othering in their own lives, here you have, you know, a group of missing and Adi people who are coming together to revive an ancestral religion, to sort of revive it with pride and to be able to centralize um, them, you know, their, their, their own roles as pig farmers, mm. the practice of pig sacrifice and all of those things. So a lot of people from Marjali sort of started drifting towards those practices and sort of started going to Pasi Ghat, learning from there, coming back and sort of making Doni Polo a part of what they do, like the Doni Polo religion as it was emerging, a part of what they do. And so I realized that this man that I walked into, his name was Kamala Kant. He's one of my most important interlocutors. And I think he's also just one of my very good friends now because he's 71. Um, so in, in a way, you know, I, I find like people, um, it's, it's, an, it's an awkward friendship in many ways, right? It's not exactly what people expect, but he is one of truly like one of the best people that I've ever met. Somebody that I would want to chat with outside of my fieldwork as well. I, I love calling him and asking him how he's doing. And I love his everyday stories about what happened in his field and what happened with his uh, pigs and with his cows and he loves listening to what happened in my classrooms and and you know so we have a really lovely relationship now but it's been many years so this is from 2016 is when I first met him so um yeah in a certain sense that he was one of those people who who started drifting towards that because he felt like he had given you know he's 71 so he started drifting towards that in 2006 so when he was around 56 so um he had given more than 50 years of his life to, to this, you know, Hinduized version of, of whatever it is that they were practicing. And this sort of um, casteist, you know, hatred and everyday frictions that were coming up really was very hurtful to him and to a lot of people because it, it doesn't really allow them to, to, to love and to take up Krishna, right? It sort of separates them from the God. So there is historically this God sort of entered into the pantheon. 
but now with all of these reclaimings of krishna as this hindu icon or hindu god or whatever it sort of does separate you from that figure so you know there is a there is a lot of sadness and there's a lot of disappointment and a lot of cruelty in that kind of separation so i think in a certain way that's those are some of the things that my dissertation is trying to iron out right like the the way in which these things work out the way in which this sort of um othering of of pork uh pork eating and othering of pig uh, farming and all of this sort of creates these very visceral uh, painful separations um between these religious discourses and so in the realm of all of that i think doni polo offers them um other relations that seem much more fulfilling and seem to be coming from you know sort of um within a world view in which their their eating habits and their everyday life is already acceptable mm-hmm. um so that's kind of what i'm looking at um but yeah yeah no i just i'm i'm blown away by the way you craft a narrative like it's just this beautiful anthropological storytelling that you have and i think um you know when i think about my limited view right coming from literary studies where a lot of us don't usually have those kinds of cultural relationships with interlocutors like our interlocutors are usually dead um usually um but like just the importance you're explaining about this the way that your interlocutors might have already had assumptions about you as an academic or even you might have had of your interlocutors it does i mean the most famous essay i think our listeners will probably know is gayatri spivak's can the subaltern speak mm-hmm. and, um i think a lot of readers of her essay feel demoralized sometimes because they think well wait um this relationship between the interlocutors can never be equal but i don't think from what you're explaining that's not exactly what's happening in your relationship with your interlocutors it's not like you know it, it, you you've built a bridge in a way that's functioning yeah and a bridge that 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 takes into account the everyday the the power relation the power relations that produce me as the anthropologist and them as the interlocutor right and i i think that's where it's um that's where it sort of worked and i would say that um i'm actually currently writing a paper on friendships in the field because i i do think that um there are many there are many interlocutors mm-hmm. right but some of them are friends um and the reason that those um sort of those meetings grew into more meetings and and they kept inviting me back to their homes and sort of let me into their intimate spaces and and shared with me very many intimate stories as well right like sometimes they'd just talk to me and say hey shweta today i just want to meet you as a friend i just want to talk, talk to you about this thing that's happening in my life right and i i did it's it's not really so much to um talk about the dissertation or sooner or later they didn't even have to say it we knew when we were talking about things that could go into the dissertation and other times not but i think i also shared things with them about my life my like you know i do talk to kamala kant about teaching because he really he he enjoys the fact that i i get to teach 
So he'll ask me, how was your classes? Did anything interesting come up? Um, or I had this other friend, Mommy. Um, she was this, uh, she's just this lovely person. And my dissertation really had nothing to do with weaving, but weaving is something that a lot of the missing women do. Like um, every day afternoon, if you walk around a missing village, you can hear the very sort of the very rhythmic clangs of the loom, right? And it's very nice. I really love the, love the sound of that because it's very calming. Usually, you know, people have had their food and they're sort of having a siesta, uh, but these women sort of, um, so it's stilt houses and most of the looms are sort of built on the ground. So under the stilts, so they sit there and they're sort of working on their loom. So they're passing the thread through the loom and pulling it and you can hear that clack and it's very rhythmic. And sometimes, you know, um, like in neighboring houses, it's, it's like, it, it's, 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 it's musical. It has a beautiful quality and that's the afternoon soundscape. Um, in, in some of these missing villages, right? So I just liked it. And I know that she used to like weaving a lot. So I asked her about it. And our friendship sort of started like that with her trying to teach me how to thread a loom, which was, um, <laughs> which was its own thing. Let's just say I do not have sartorial talents. Um, but it was hilarious. It was funny. It was nice. But she was very persistent. She was like, of course you don't. She was like, you should have seen how bad I was when I tried it for the first time. And then she talked a lot about how um, young children come and play around the loom of their mothers. And that's how they notice these things. And they start like, if, if they're able to pick it up very well from the beginning, it's not because, you know, a particular tribe has a natural talent for X. But it's because you watched it. You've sort of, you know, stewed in it. And you've sort of... Um, you know, you, you pick up these knowledges in all these ways. And it's very funny because I have very similar ideas about knowledges and, and stuff. And mine, of course, comes from like Foucault and comes from reading all these things about like tradition and mm -hmm. what is learned and what, how you learn and unlearn and what you pick up um, in and through your daily, everyday embodied practices. And so I would tell her some of those things. I would tell her, you know, theoretically, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And so sometimes I would actually be talking Foucault with her um and she would be talking about weaving with me mm. and then you know she'd be like oh do you want tea and then after tea she'd be like do you want to walk with me to the riverside and that was one of her favorite things to do take like an evening walk down the river and on many evenings i i sort of was her companion to do that and we started talking about things home parents you know friends um my apartment in dc um, once again, teaching students, her concerns about her children's education. And I think in, in, in all of these conversations, whether it was with mommy or whether it was with Kamala Khan, something that I think I never tried to hide as well as I, I think they held me accountable for was to always recognize my own privileges. Mm. Right? Like, so our friendships happened in and through sort of recognition of privileges of frictions of power relations um like one time i told mommy that i think she she would be a very good philosopher and she told me yeah no i would it's just that you know i didn't have access to the kind of education that you did mm. and she's as frank as that and so which is true right um so in a certain sense i think it, it's a very sort of a humbling um experience but in a very everyday sort of mundane way um like nobody's trying to put you in your place by saying hey you're privileged right and you and hopefully i never did that to them in any other way 
Um, I would hope not because we have a good relationship, right? But and but all of our ex, there were awkward moments too, where I'm like, mm, yeah, I have had access to English language education all my life, for example, and that comes up because we're talking about something, and you know, like Kamala Kant one time, he he does he sometimes works as a local guide for people traveling to Marjorie, and that's uh, a way for him to make some additional money especially when it's sort of the agricultural off season because otherwise he's a rice farmer um so he was like taking these people around the uh village and and he said something to them in english they didn't expect it so and 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 then of course like when you don't expect sometimes those are the encounters where people blame it on accents and on all of these things which have very ugly underpinnings right so he was very embarrassed by it. So he came back and he asked me, did I say this correctly? So I said, yeah, you did. So, but in moments like that, right, I have to be aware that um, he, obviously he feels okay in asking me that question, but I am the person he asks that question to also because of very particular privileges that I have or what I seem to represent in the space of that missing village, right? Um, so, yeah, and also like in serious conversations, sometimes people would talk about, um, say, you know, we're, we're going to share with you a folk story that is really important to us, very close to our, our hearts. It has been misrepresented by anthropologists before. Please don't do that to us. Mm. So, but I like it. I like that that's our relationship, right? Yeah. Where they can talk to me about things that are uncomfortable, um, and and they can ask me to live with that discomfort. Mm -hmm. So I think if we have a friendship, I think it comes from sort of recognizing these awkward um, moments in mm -hmm. which ethnography happens right. um, and recognizing that ethnography in itself is, is sort of a making of a relationship, right? Like in the process of doing ethnography, you are making relationships and the more you work with someone, the more that relationship will grow in, in sort of unexpected ways. And so to be a little bit open to that unexpectedness of it. And I think in these cases where it became friendships, I think I would say that there was an openness from both sides that that just seemed to come together very nicely. But yeah, and I think the bridge comes in and through what Spivak says, right? It's not outside of what Spivak says. It's just that it doesn't always exist as the alterity, as something that cannot be accessed, but it is a sort of reconciliation of the multiple representational spaces through which both you and your interlocutor have to sort of traverse in order to even have that conversation. So, Wait, what yeah. what doesn't exist through alt through alterity through a sense of inapproachability? No, I mean. Earlier, we were talking about how I was able to make a bridge in spite of the right. fact how that you and your interlocutors were able to become friends, were able to exchange ideas. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think what I'm saying is that it exists well within the space of, I think, some of the problematic things that Spivak's trying to point us in the direction mm -hmm. of, right? She's talking about the problems of representation. They're always there. <laughs> um, these relationships exist with them. So the idea is that by acknowledging these problems and having the intention of pushing through them, you're able to do some 
good anthropological work with these people and not incidentally have friendships with them. Yeah, I mean, they're not incidental. Um, but I think it's also in sort of being open to the fact that you could be wrong. Mm. Right. You may right. make those mistakes. You have to be open in that moment to acknowledging that you were wrong, right? And so like, um, sometimes I think, I think really um, the one thing that's been really helpful for me and something that I also try to teach in my classes or something that comes up in conversations with peers uh, and also something I have discussed with my advisors mm -hmm. um, is this is, is, is being open almost all the time in the moment to uh, vulnerability, right? Both yours and yours and those of the others that you are talking to yeah. because your people at the end of the day, both of you, and we all sort of um, have embodied, uh, you know, tensions yeah. Um, and they will come out in moments of um, conversation with someone else. And you can't constantly have this anthropologist hat on, which is also <laughs> not a person. Like, you are a person. And like there were moments, for example, like certain very casteist remarks or something. They did rub me. Like I, I understood them only in and through of my own experiences of certain things before, right, in my life. But then I also have to remember in that moment that I cannot let what they are telling me about their experience of the moment be drowned out by my experience, but my experience could act as a good sounding board for me to ask further questions about, do you mean like this? Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it just helped to say, okay, the only way in which I have heard about this before is like this, mm -hmm. right? And so to sort of give them my reference point. Um, and then they'd say, well, yeah, it is similar, but not the same. And so in, in those moments, like the, the, I mean, you're trying to go beyond this idea of sameness and difference a little bit and being open to the fact that there is always going to be difference. Yeah. Um, how do you live with it? Um, so, yeah, I, 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 the only thing I was trying to add to what you were saying, Adam, is um, I don't think it was previously acknowledging those things, right? But being open to those very sort of tense things that Gayatri Spivak's talking about being open to the idea that they will pop up over and over and over and over again in the doing of the ethnography. And no matter how aware or woke or whatever you try to be, you cannot first develop a good a personality and then go into the field. You're going to be an, you are an ethnographer only when you are in the field. Like you're yeah. not an ethnographer in the field, but it's the field that makes you <laughs> the anthropologist and then the interlocutor. So you just have to be willing to make mistakes. Negotiate, yeah, and, and to be open to all the things that pop up, I think. So yeah, one of the I things that I... Oh, wait, I, well, I was going to say, is the theme over the interviews we've had, and I feel like you're really speaking well, Shweta, to letting the ego go as a researcher, and this is something that's come up in every interview, and I think it's strategic with Adam and I just our current anxieties and of this moment is um, you keep bringing up your teaching. And I think that's really interesting because it speaks to how you're approaching your ethnography, that you see both of these, your role as an ethnographer is also your role as a teacher. And I was just curious, is there something that, um, like the act of empathy in your role as a teacher and as an ethnographer that, um, you know, uh, you could maybe speak to. Yeah, I mean, I recently read this wonderful book called A Possible Anthropology by an, um, by Anand Pandian, who is at Johns Hopkins. Um, Can you say the name again? A Possible Anthropology. By? 
Anand Pandian. Great. It's in okay, the thank link you. to this one. Yes, please. Um, we'll include it in the yeah, underneath the yeah. interview. Yes, yes. He, um, he, like, so it's, 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 it's a possible anthropology, right? So it's about anthropological possibilities. And in a way, it's a, it's a book on sort of recognizing anthropology's very problematic his entanglements with colonialism and how early anthropology has actually very much been a handmaiden to colonialism, right? Um, helping um, empires categorize their subjects into tribes, into populations, into governable objects and, and stuff. And, and, but I think this book sort of brings it back and sort of asks us to gaze, use our, you know, much more um, decolonized lens of anthropology and sort of turn it back onto the way we do anthropology today. Um, but something I really loved about the book was how it's not just the field that he's talking about. There are different sections of the book and fieldwork is just one of the many, many things that the anthropologist does, right? Writing is another space, but teaching is also another space. And because and, and I, I like that because in a way, I think um, I like being a student. So in, a, in that sense, I like being a teacher because when I am in a classroom and if the teacher is really good, I think, you know, I, I feel so happy and so satisfied. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do a PhD, right? Is I wanted to learn. And so when I'm on the other side, sort of in being the teacher, I feel like, I want to be that kind of person who's able to create intrigue, right? Create the, the, the environment for learning. Um, and I think in a, in, this, in a similar fashion, I see the field as these relationships in the field specifically, I think they created for me an environment in which I could learn a lot about people's lives, the way they live. Um, so that I think is sort of the, the, the thing that I see as being common to the many, many things that one does, right? Like whether you're a student or you're a teacher in, in the classroom and sort of in the field. And they are seen as separate spaces in some ways. There is like sort of the classroom is a space of theory uh, making and sort of learning theory and the field is the much more practical zone of but I learned a lot of theory when I was in the field, literally through the conversations, as I was saying. So mommy, the way she talks about weaving, for example, she, to her, it's a moment where she forgets herself. According to her, she exists with color. And if I could go into my notes and tell you everything that she said, she's very Deleuzean. I... Like, I don't know that I learned much more from reading Deleuze than I learned from that conversation with mommy, right? So, in, so I just think you, you, you are encountering different forms of knowledge, different ways in which knowledge is being generated. And, and um, so in a certain sense, I think I see both the classroom and the field as like learning spaces. And so for me, essentially, in some ways, like, again, this is not something I always embodied. This is also something that has come from a lot of unlearning on my part, right? is that to learn, you kind of have to set aside your previous assumptions. And so also sort of that is setting aside a bit of that ego, right? And like, you can't be the knowledgeable eye. Um, you have to much, much more be sort of more open to, to things that you may not know, things that you may not uh, be able to prevaricate or so predict about the field or the classroom. And so I think in the classroom too, one of the things that I, I really try to do and um, have sometimes I think done nicely is sort of be open all the time to the fact that you, you're 
previously prepared lecture is just a template. It's it's sort of a it's it's a guiding. It's a it's it's like a guidebook, right? Mm. What happens in the classroom has to happen, taking into account where the students are able to open themselves up, and to, to it has to happen in conversation with the students, just as much as in the field. Your your own questions with which you come into the field um, will fall apart when you start asking them, mm-hmm. and new questions will emerge because of what people tell you. And so when you're listening. You have to then respond as opposed to saying, okay, now that you've answered question A, here's my pre-prepared question B. So in the same way, like when you're teaching, you can't do that, right? Like you can't say, I think this class is going off track, so let me come back to where I want it to be. Sometimes you have to do that when it does really go derail itself, right? You, you want to make sure you share everything that you know. But yeah. I think some of the best seminars that I've been in are the seminars where it's, it's loosely structured, Mm-hmm. there's a lot of space for it to become something that was previously unexpected or could not have been predicted by a teacher alone, but it's sort of shaped by the interactions between the professor and the student in the moment. Hmm. Um, so I think those are some of the commonalities. And in, in that sort of way, then you, you, it's not you, it's not a single actor doing it. And I think it's, it's always a multiplicity, a plurality of actors, right? So ego is something that's got to be slightly displaced, I think. And it's shared agency. Like you're really talking about this type of teacher-student symbiotic relationship and energy that it feels so organic because the teacher has been so uh, focused on making sure their students have this comfortability that they can debate with the instructor as well. And like you said, it's not, the instructor isn't the authority figure. Like, I mean, there is an authority always, but it's not, the instructor is not just trying to impress upon the students. Look at all of my knowledge. Like, right. aren't I the smartest person you've ever met? Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, definitely not that last. Time. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's off-putting, right? Because imagine yourself in the student's shoes and if your instructor walked in and said, I am the smartest person you've ever met and... <laughs> You know, if not for me, you're going to know nothing. But That's... there are definitely professors who do that. I mean, I don't know if you've read any lectures by Vladimir Nabokov, but that's that's very clearly. So he's he's published lecture series on Russian literature, on Cervantes, on lots of topics, and that's very clearly his guiding principle: is I'm the best at reading, and I'm, and and you little shits better listen to what I say. Mm. Oh and no, no, that's... I'm gonna have to go back to his fiction with an entirely different level. No, but but so that's the thing is that he's he's really close to being right because he does have incredibly useful and interesting takes on literature. Mm-hmm. But of course not everybody not everybody can get away with that, is basically like like he does a he does a good enough job at being the worst kind of teacher that you let him get away with it because his his readings on these texts are interesting. Yeah. But it's not it's not some I don't I I I feel badly for the person who tries to learn how to teach from someone like him but doesn't have the the best sellers and the personal charisma and so on to pull it off. Mm. It it's just not it's not it's not I'm curious what your relationship is with your um with your advisors, with your professors, uh, to what extent have they 
encouraged or uh, pushed back on your endeavors? So yeah, even earlier as you were talking, I was thinking about this. Like I said, I think like some of what I, I, I see now as um, good teaching practices or like just good ways of being in the field or it's definitely, you know, me having learned from people who seem to be doing it that way, but also having unlearned a lot of things that I think, um, you know, that I've encountered through my own experience of education at different levels, right? So I, I've had professors both in India as well as in the US who do sort of embody the, I, I am the best uh, person you're going to learn from framework. Um, in a way, it has been off-putting to me because I have seen how little I learn from someone who comes in with that because it's, it's hard to be able to open up something for debate and discussion and that's the attitude. So something that I would say is in India, um, I think we still, unfortunately, in many colleges, it's still very much the very old-fashioned sort of lectures, right, where um, the professor is the authority and, and, and in a way you're, you're, playing, you're playing the expert. Um, oh, I mean, we all play the expert and different roles and scenarios and, and you know, but um, you're playing the expert in a way where there's no room for anyone to challenge or question or, you know, even asking questions can get very tedious. It can, it can actually feel very threatening, right? You're, you may just want to say, uh -huh, uh, but did you mean this or, or that? Do you mean something like this with another example? And that, that can feel very offensive to someone who feels, you know, they came in as the person who knows everything about this topic. And then you sort of challenge them by asking this question. And that has sort of happened to me a lot, both in school as well as in college. I think I, uh, in India, I, I actually many times asked the question very innocently, <laughs> got burned and then realized Maybe I shouldn't. And then went through phases where I thought, okay, maybe I will not ask questions in class at all. Mm. Um, and so there are, there are, you know, these bad examples that I've had, I have gone through myself, right? But at the same time, these are also unfortunately learning spaces. So my own initial endeavors to try and lead a classroom or something, I try to embody that same kind of all-knowing persona, that personality, right? Like, oh, even if it's a student presentation in, in an undergrad class, you sort of say, okay, so let me try to be like the professor. So you try to say, okay, this is my topic. I've done research on this. I'm making this presentation. So I'm the one that really knows everything. And so any question that anyone asks feels offensive. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I think it's, it's taken me a lot of time to see just how counterproductive that is because it, it closes off conversation. It doesn't really um, give you much of a, again, right, we're, we're very close to each other in those moments where we feel utterly offended and we feel defensive. Mm. Um, and I think in a certain sense, on the other hand, um, at all levels, at undergrad level, um, at the at my, I mean, during my undergrad, when I was doing my master's or when I was doing my PhD, I have had experience of the opposite kind where, um, you know, professors are willing to say, okay, well, if you think I'm wrong, call me out. Or, you know, when you challenge them with 
even if you challenge them and not just innocently ask a question and say, hey, but isn't this the other thing? That doesn't offend them. They're much more open to debate and discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's sort of been, uh, you know, learning. And I would say a lot of it's also unlearning, right? Because sometimes I think the, the, the kind of model that I encountered in the very beginning was most often the, the I am the expert in the room. I speak, you take notes, you learn from me kind of model, which then I, I also have embodied. And actually, um, much to the chagrin of friends and other people, sometimes you embody that in everyday conversation as well, right? Like you go to college, you learn something. So you come back and you, the next dinner party you are in with your friends, you act like that obnoxious, all-knowing idiot at the <laughs> table and everybody's angry at you and you don't know why you thought you were saying something really great and something that everybody is going to appreciate and suddenly nobody likes you and, <laughs> <laughs> you know and you don't understand what's going on i've been on. there have you andrew well it sounds like the seminar performative experience of taking oh, courses yes. during your two years of the seminars and who can out impress the other and yeah you know, then I started to realize, oh, wow, I'm, you know, it's not about just name dropping theorists. Like it's about also engaging with each other and trying to learn from each other. But yeah, I think we've all been there. I mean, yeah. and also recognizing yeah. where like you're losing the other person and sort of not going down the continuing conversations in that same tone of I'm still talking because I'm yeah. the I know you've stopped listening to me like 20 minutes ago, but I'm still going to talk. Going back to one of our old points about sort of the relationship between the classroom and the field, right? Yeah. Um, in the classroom, you may sort of annoy and irritate your fellow students or your professor. But in the field, this kind of posturing can actually be quite, it, it, can, it can sort of reify and retrate those problematic power relations that you are in the first place trying to be very aware of, right? Like, so one of the things that I had to remember here is I am not the expert on Tony Polo. (laughs) I may come across it in many different iterations and perhaps, you know, like through people, I meet more people and they invite me into their houses and stuff like, you know, so at the end of the day, there was a day when jokingly Kamala Khan told me, I think you've been to more prayer services than I have in this last, you know, um, one year, which is probably true because, you know, he was only going to the ones he was going to, but I was invited to all the ones that he was going to, most of which I attended, but I was also going to other homes and other things and, and watching the same thing over and over again. So at some point in, on my very last um, prayer with him, he asked me if I wanted to leave the songs. And I said, no, it would be so wrong. And he was like, why would it be so wrong? So I said, well, I'm not exactly practicing member of your religion. Hmm. And he said, no, but you know the song better than most of So why don't you sing it? But if I, if I, if I chose to see that as a point of expertise, there is something really wrong. Hmm. Right? Because expertise has a lot to do with representation as well. And I think, you know, it's a way we represent ourselves in a way, but it's also like the way we represent what we are writing about and stuff like that, right? So I think that kind of posturing yourself as an expert can just go really wrong. So in fact, in some of my conversations with my interlocutors, I had to assure them, you know, you can do this interview with me. Do not worry. I am not trying to co-opt 
your religion. I'm not trying to act like I am the authority on your religion, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very aware also that you are still in the process of um, coming up with the rules and the frameworks for various ritualistic practices. You are still reviving the religion. You're reviving. It's, it's, it's a process that is happening, not something that's happened. So to claim expertise on something like that, when they themselves feel they haven't quite established authority yet, would it, 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 it's such a, it's, it would be such a reiteration of a colonial framework. Yeah. So I think this sort of expertise comes with that sort of, you know, claiming that kind of power in, in a space. Um, and I think my field work in itself has actually been one of the biggest um, learning curves for me, right? Like in doing this field work, I think I, I really want to say that I, I know that I've changed a lot as a person. Um, and I, I, I can now see how problematic it is to, to position yourself as an expert on X or Y. Um, but it's funny because once you're back in the university space and particularly, you know, now I'm thinking of like, I have to be in the job market and stuff. You have to position yourself suddenly as an expert on, on mm -hmm. biorex and, and that's what classrooms do to you too. They, they ask you to lead the class because you are the expert on X. So there is a, this is the way the university works, um, especially with it's sort of this neoliberal frame of the university, right? Mm -hmm. The way it works and sort of requires you to play that expert. Um, so I think it takes a constant sort of awareness to know that that's the framework, that's what the university expects, but um, you know, there's a fine subtle balance between being able to um, represent yourself as somebody who can be authoritative, mm -hmm. but without necessarily being closed off to someone else's opinion and someone else's ideas and in, in the room. And I think it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a balance because you don't also want to say, Hey, I'm not, then how does anyone trust you with a class or how does anyone trust you with, you know? Um, and so I, I don't know, it's, it's something it's, it's a negotiation. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was just going to too, it seems like you learned a lot. Like the listeners don't know that you were a medical doctor in India and I think that's important to bring up towards the end of the interview, just because in a field where it's so focused on specialty, right? Like in academia, you're focused on specialty, but as a medical doctor, you have to be forced into a specialty in a way. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, like, yeah. So, well, yeah, well, no, no, but I'm just wondering if, that experience of being trained as an MD, if that speaks to your unlearning or if it actually, if it cuts both ways. Like if you, you feel that the work you're doing now is very intersectional because of your experience as an MD, while also, you know, I guess like maybe what I'm trying to get to is, you know, how did your experience as an MD shape maybe where you are now yeah so um technically it's an mbbs though so it's the mb equivalent but in india it's called the mbbs because you do it's it's a bachelor's it's bachelor's in medicine and bachelor's in surgery because you kind of do it right out of high school and so i was 17 when i started med school very convinced that it's going to be one of the best doctors and everything like that and uh, three years down the line i was like well i really like the science hmm. I also really like the interactions with the patients, but I don't think I want to be a doctor. 
um, I want to be something else. So that's also why I moved away. But um, to go back to what you were saying, I think, so medical college, what I experienced it as, what I learned from in the moment, as opposed to how I have relearned from it on reflecting about it multiple times in my life after having left the space, I think they're very different things. Because I think in the moment I was 17, when I started, I was 23 when I graduated. Um, so somewhat of a kid, <laughs> somewhat of a kid, relatively speaking, right? Like I, um, I think it was also like, these are very formative years in, in our lives, um, regardless of which school we go to. Um, these are also very confusing years of our life where we, we don't know who we are, what we like, what we want, what we desire, how we think about ourselves, our bodies. And so it's a, it's very interesting <laughs> to be reading about bodies and the normal and the pathological and all of those things in those years as well. So I think, um, and in India, I, I went to, I went to medical school at, in Madras Medical College. It's in um, the city of Chennai. It's Madras Medical College because the city of Chennai was called Madras. Mm. Um, and it's, it's sort of a grand old institution because it was set up by the British in um, 1785, I want to say, the hospital. And then the college came up in 1835. So it's like, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old institution. So in a certain sense, professors and people who teach you, they do embody the kind of authority and expertise that we are talking about, right? Because um, it's, it's this reputable hospital. In India, on top of this, there's a lot of caste authority in all of these spaces. And, and because of the way caste has always worked with education, a lot of people are also upper caste students, and so was I. Um, and I think I didn't have half of the knowledge of what I have today about all of those things. I, and I wouldn't say I was completely unknowledgeable either. I had knowledges of my caste privilege and I had knowledges, but not really in the way I, I think about them today when I'm reading critical race theory and I'm reading, uh, you know, Ambedkar and I'm reading people on caste with a much more careful and critical lens. Um, I sort of knew what I was reading in newspapers, maybe a few novels, maybe a few books, and, and, and also like in and through of my own experiences of, oh no, that really felt wrong or that really felt... But your interactions both in your classroom spaces as well as those with patients are sort of shaded by all of those things. Um, and I think that was also a really good teaching point. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's something that I would really just think about as sort of an encapsulating way of talking about what I'm generally, I think I've learned a lot from these sort of everyday moments, whether it is in the hospitals or whether it is in the classrooms in medical school, college or like later, um, I went to BU after that for my master's in science and medical journalism. And then I, I shifted to a PhD in anthropology. So it's been, it's, it's been a very interesting journey through multiple disciplines, through multiple fields. Um, so what's, what's the next PhD going to be in? Oh my God. Physics. <laughs> there you go. I'll talk to you next when I'm studying quantum Fantastic. gravity. Well, <laughs> tell you what, every time, every time you get a PhD will will interview you again. Yes, Thank you. Thank you. that's the incentive. That's the incentive. We should just call all, it the, get the all of that. ivory towers, boiler rooms. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, I just love. I think you just encapsulated. 
No, but I think like again, like with those patients, right? It's the same thing with the with the with the interlocutors. But I think with my interlocutors, I'm I'm I've learned much more before I've I've actually gone to Assam and I've started doing this work. With my patients, I was 22 years old when I started this compulsory medical internship that you had to do, and so um, there were times when they said, "Well, you're a kid, so mm. I don't know if we should share this problem with you." And then I'd be like, well, I'm the only doctor available. And he'd be like, fine, it's okay that you're a kid. Here is my problem, right? So the kind of authority that you can embody is also very different in, in some of those moments. But in sometimes, you know, you're the one with the experts. So you also try to put on that sort of expertise, hoping that it will make up for your lack of age or, you know, seeming lack of wisdom or whatever it is. But yes, as you were asking earlier, medical... Um, the medical profession does rely a lot of the, on this notion of expertise. Um, and we used to joke even amongst us students that, you know, by the time we have finished medical college, they'll probably have, I'm a thumb expert, I'm an index finger expert, I'm a, that's how much it was branching. <laughs> and so it does rely on all of that. And you do encounter people like that, like doctors like that, right? But I think, again, it was my patients from whom I learned a lot about, it just didn't sit well with people. Yeah, they, they weren't were your... listening to me when I was using that kind of, you know, when I tried to embody that kind of voice or that kind of, um, I once tried and it was very ridiculously funny because a patient that I was talking to uh, started laughing when I was done. And she said, you sound ridiculously funny when you try to be authoritative. <laughs> wow. It's like, okay. That's... But other times it was not funny, right? It was like... Um, I'd feel bad after coming away thinking, well, they were sick and I was, I was just not a nice person in, in, the, in the room. I, I didn't like the way it all came off. Mm. So it was a lot of trial and error. There were times when I think I was too soft and it didn't, you know, and maybe vague because of that. And then I had to go back and say, no, I meant it. <laughs> um, you have to do this. But, but yeah, I think these were all like just moments where you learn um, in a way. And then again, through negotiations. of, of Yeah, well, I was going to go back to that. I feel like you've really helped just provide a way of thinking about, you know, negotiating um, power and privilege, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be when you're out doing field work. Um, and... You know, I think back to when I first entered the PhD program, I would never have said what I'm saying right now because I wasn't in the same headspace. Like You were adorable, by the way. Aw, that's so nice, Adam. Thank you. I remember um, that. And I was, anyway, go on. You know, and it, maybe it, definitely it's age. I mean, I entered when I was 21. Um, but also I had, I did kind of put on an authority or saw authority in a different way with my students. Um, and I think it was also just, I was trying to navigate what it meant to be an instructor for the mm -hmm. first time in a college classroom. But I don't think like I laid down, you know, uh, yeah. the rule in a harsh way, but yeah, we were on a journey. And no, we all have this problem. My very first semester as a TA, I was 24 and I had a student who was 30 uh, come to my office hours and I had to be I mean I, I, I basically had to be the authority in the matters that I'm an authority in and also respect her you know for having come through all of these um, I, I guess come through a lot more life 
to get to that conversation that we were that she and I were having mm -hmm. than I had. Mm -hmm. um, she had been a teacher. She had been all sorts of things, and now was coming to um, to 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 me for help in something. And I had I basically had to know my place. At least that's how I felt at the time. Hmm. Could I also just quickly say that I feel like some of this also reminds me of like the the imposter syndrome, right? That a lot. Yeah. Of, I mean, I feel like all of all, all students at some point or the other has definitely felt um, like that imposter. Hmm. I don't know. Like the first couple of years of my PhD, I think that is when I started to feel really just tired of trying to posture myself as an expert on mm -hmm. something that I wasn't an expert on. Um, and for me, having shifted fields so much, it was always also, I always started every new thing as a, I know nothing. And therefore, maybe I, I, I played the I've done all the reading and I can totally answer this question or I, I can be the person that asks the smart questions in this class or something a little bit too much. Um, I don't know, it was just a tiring relationship with the PhD itself. Hmm. Um, where it seems like you just go from posturing to posturing to posturing to posturing, coming out feeling like the imposter in some ways, but yeah, I, I was just very tired and I, I think I consciously decided to change that a little bit. Um, no, and I, I, I agree. I with, sorry, sorry. I, I, I agree with your with your diagnosis, so to speak. I mean, <laughs> I mean, all of all of our university um, system comes from the sort of, for better or for worse, pretty directly from the Western philosophical tradition, right? From Plato and Socrates and stuff like that. And so the the basic tenet of our existence is supposed to be all I know is the fact the fact of my own ignorance. When, and in fact, in practice, it's all I know is the fact of my own ignorance, plus all of these things that I studied for comps, plus all of these things that the freshmen and sophomores assume I know because I'm wearing a blazer to class and they're not. <laughs> uh, and but but try putting together all I know is my ignorance with the Cartesian, I, um, I know, therefore I am. Right, exactly. And what and by that logic, we don't exist. Yeah, but, but that's that's a whole problem. All I know is my they cancel each other. I know that's what I am, so I know nothing, so I must be an imposter. <laughs> and I I don't know. I I think um I mean it came with also a lot of what I was reading, right? Like um I think initially when I joined school, I was also not sure I was taking the right classes. It's not, they were not the right fit for me. Like I, I remember joining school and not knowing whether I did the right thing because I wasn't really feeling comfortable with the person I thought I was going to choose as my advisor. I wasn't feeling very comfortable with a lot of the classes that I was taking. And they, were, they seemed very much, again, like this sort of how to build expertise, how to be this sort of expert. And, mm -hmm. and you know, we have all these professionalization seminars where the, where the professors are very much aware that they're sort of prepping you for this neoliberal university, which in another way is the problem in itself. So they are experiencing it as well, but they've got to prep you. So it's, it's sort of awkward where people are aware of the problem, but then they don't think they're doing their job very well unless they can prep you to be a part of it, to, to take up a job in it, right? So it gets reiterated and sort of reified. Yeah. Um, these frameworks over and over again and all of these things. And I think, um, I, but 
I, I, I like with my current advisor, um, I, I like she wasn't there in that first year of mine. She she was on sabbatical and she came back in the second year. Um, she did this wonderful class on gender and sexuality um, in which we read really lovely texts. They were all of queer theory. And I think somewhere there is when I, 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 I think I really started to question in and through the sort of reading of those texts, my own relationship with learning and, and what it is that I've tried to come because I, this is sort of my third degree, right? I mean, everybody does a bachelor's, a master's and a PhD. If you want to do a PhD, you've done three, but it was like a third field almost. And, and I, I, I think I was at a point where I was like, well, if I'm not going to do this properly, then I don't know what I'm doing here. And I was feeling very frustrated with myself because I just felt I was getting stymied one more time at this attempt to educate myself. Um, but some of those texts, they were very elemental and sort of changing the way I feel. And I think we talked about this one time before, but like Eve Sedgwick, right? Like reading Eve Sedgwick, yeah. um, reading um, Delusion Theory, reading Foucault. I, I love Foucault. Wow. Um, but reading it with her was also very nice because she believes very much that ethnography is a dialogue between... Um, things that exist in sort of the theory space and things that exist in the field space where you don't try to privilege one as theory and one as the field. And it also comes from, she's also a person of color and, you know, she's, she's Canadian, but she's uh, an immigrant from Pakistan. So your so, advisor. My advisor. Yes. Sorry. Go on. Um, yeah. So in a certain sense, like, she also reads a lot of critical race theory. And, and so I think in a certain sense, she really was very elemental in that moment in trying to help me think about these power relations, not just in the field and in the class, not, not as separate spaces, but sort of in the process of doing all of these things, right? Where the global North and Europe doesn't exist as a space of theory and everything else as objects of study. Um, whereas one, one, tries to put them into dialogue with each other. And that is one of the ways in which we read, we read them side by side. You know, we read what Mommy says with what Aristotle says and try to create a conversation between Mommy and Aristotle rather than interpreting Mommy through an Aristotelian lens or a Foucauldian yeah. lens. So, so one doesn't exist as object of interpretation and the other one as somewhat this site of knowledge, which then you become the conduit for you know, it's, it's much different. So I think until I, I encountered a few professors like that who are very inspiring. And I think currently I'm very lucky. It took me a while to really think about who I want in my committee and, and to, to come up with a committee. But I work with four extremely inspiring um, female anthropologists who have in their own way had to work through a lot of power relations, right? So they are very supportive of the kind of anthropology that I want to do. So I think I'm in a good space where I think I've sort of moved past that is one an imposter or not binary, where I'm not interested in playing that game anymore. Yeah. Um, I refuse to let imposter syndrome take me over. And I feel like, you know, you never know how long your romance with um, the university is going to run because once you're out of your PhD, you're sort of out of that sort of safe zone, right? You have to, you have to find a job within the university space to last. You never know. Um, my advisor did say go and be a scholar in the world which is very nice to think that I will still be able to do things that I lo love regardless of where I end up mm -hmm. but you don't know that but I so I feel like you know I don't want to poison the time I have within academia um, through these sort of lenses or these neoliberal lenses and these um, 
sort of very crude frameworks which make you feel like a fraud mm. for trying to do something that you really just love doing. Um, so well, yeah. Yeah, I can hear your authenticity and I think, um, you know, everyone listening um, can just hear the passion in your voice and that you've made it work for your journey. Like you've, you've come, you've, Oh. negotiated, I'll use that term again, but that's, you know, your term that you're using, but you've made your own terms and you're not going to exist in this neoliberal framework as you view it. And I think that's important because you've, you've freed yourself in a way from a, a certain- We are all subject of Ram Foucauldians. Children. We are all subject to it, I think. That's the true. question is to like be aware that that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no other, there's no other way of doing it. And it's it's hard. I think we all try to do it differently. We all um, face repercussions of different kinds. And so I think sometimes it's also like, I think what I'm, I don't, I don't think I've learned that I'm trying to learn all the time, right? Is to sort of try to learn that you cannot get bogged down by, um, rejections and um you know you try to do something your way because it speaks better to the kind of methodologies and practices that you want to bring in but then maybe a grant committee doesn't get it and you don't get a particular grant and somebody else gets that grant and you know that you know their work is more legible because they are using existing frameworks and um so i i think one of the things that i've learned through like these like in trying to change my relationship with academia, it's also been sort of a learning curve where I've had to like change then like my relationship with the way I feel if I don't get a grant that I apply to or I don't get so deep. it's it's a it's also a lesson in patience in many ways. Yeah. Um but yeah, hmm. fingers crossed. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I think this is sorry, I know we ran way no. over time, but thanks no. for letting me say what I wanted of to say. Of course, no, I think oh, it was so important to have you yeah, just finish. It's been riveting the analysis that you're providing us. And, you know, thank you so much for allowing us to interview you, Shweta. Um, this was, I know for myself, um, I learned so much from you. So thank you for that. Same, 100%. Thank you guys for giving me, I'm, I'm really just like really interested in sort of listening back to myself. And I'm, I'm sure I will have a moment where I was like, I must learn never to say that again. Wrong. But no, this yeah, is that's always an interesting experience when we hear ourselves back again. But um, yeah, it's yeah. awkward. Yeah, but, but thank you to all the listeners out there. And, um, you know, we're going to continue this theme of navigating our way outside of precarity. Because I think that's become, you know, the theme of the time. Um, okay. Bye, everyone.